Hey, good morning. How are you? What? <laughs> you going to ask me? Nobody asked? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for asking. This is, uh, wow, it's summertime. This is, uh, this is a huge summer in the Jackson family. We are celebrating three anniversaries. One, Meredith and I got married 20 years ago, so our 20th anniversary is this summer. Yeah. <clears throat> also, we have been, I just thought about this this last week. We've been in ministry, like paid ministry for 20 years this summer. So um, that's pretty cool. And um, we also graduated from Bible college 20 years ago. So, I, you know, there's, that's a big summer, 20, 2020. And uh, the only thing that proves is that God is faithful, right? And that he's still on the throne and, uh, and he still loves us. So, <laughs> so here we are this morning. Meredith and I did graduate in 2001, which makes us a little bit older than some of you and a lot younger than some of the rest of you. <clears throat> it was a really great place to go to school. We loved it, actually. But, you know, like some of those schools, it, it was one of those places that had some rules that didn't make a whole lot of sense, Right? So guys couldn't have facial hair at all, had to shave every single day or once a month in my case. <laughs> Girls, uh, ladies couldn't wear pants unless it was uh, colder than like 40 degrees outside. That was a big no-no. And then everybody had a 10.30 p.m. curfew with lights out and all the rest of that, right? So there was no alcohol allowed, of course, definitely on campus and, and even off campus during breaks and summer and all that sort of stuff. So one of those types of schools. And some of you grew up in that kind of uh, environment, so you know what I'm talking about. But in my four years of, of that school, I had a job at the gym. I worked sort of in the facilities, and uh, I sat at the scores table during basketball games and volleyball games and things like that, right across the court from all of the fans. The fans sat here on the bleachers, the court was there, and then I was at the scores table kind of helping run the, the shot clock and things like that. And one day, Meredith came over uh, to the table during halftime of one of the games and gave my buddy and I a soda. And uh, you can tell where I'm from because I say soda. And uh, it was an IBC root beer. And some of you know where I'm going with this. Uh, she got at the little snack shop right outside the gym. But the thing with IBC root beer is that it, it, it came in a bottle that looked a lot like what most beer bottles look like. At least it did to the president of the Bible college. So his name was Dr. Thompson. So President Thompson saw me from across the gym, and he came hustling over at the end of halftime, and in his most gentle and yet presidential voice, he said, what are you doing drinking beer? And what followed was a really nice conversation in which Dr. Thompson tried to convince me uh, that I needed to understand the benefit of using discernment, and where I tried to help him understand that Meredith had made me do it. <laughs> Lord, the woman you gave me, she gave it to me, and I did drink. That's what I said. <laughs> what I really learned that day, though, is a, is a lesson in wisdom. And, you know, it's a lesson that I keep learning, and I need to keep learning even today. And I think we probably all need to keep learning about wisdom. And I'm telling you right now, that's where we're going this morning. So how to choose when the choice isn't clear. How to choose when the choice isn't clear. And we're calling it wisdom in gray areas this morning. So grab your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 14. That's where we're going to spend some time this morning. When it comes to talking about making wise decisions, though, we need to lay some groundwork here, some ground rules maybe, just kind of get some presuppositions out there. Okay, so here's what I mean. When we talk about gray areas this morning, 
and how to make wise choices, we're going to assume, number one, that the Bible was written by God. It's without error. It was given to its original readers in their context and has authority to give us a standard for living in the year 2021. Now, that may be a big assumption for some of you, and I get that, okay? Hang with me this morning. I think we'll be on the same page by the end. So a gray area, here's a definition. A gray area is any area of Life that the Bible simply doesn't speak to in absolute terms. There's your definition. Any area of life that the Bible just simply doesn't speak to in very absolute, specific terms. Okay, so there's no specific command, no verse for that, no chapter and verse that I can turn to. There's no thou shalt or thou shalt not do this. So I put together a little list of questions that that I've been asked over the past few weeks that might fall into this category of gray areas. It might actually surprise you that as pastors, most of the questions that we get here and there are questions like this, these gray area type questions. In fact, I can't remember the last time someone came to me and said, Pastor Jason, uh, my neighbor was setting off fireworks until midnight on July 3rd. Is it okay if I go boost his car and drive it into the lake? No, that's not okay in case you're wondering. There, there actually is a verse for that, thou shall not steal. It's kind of one of the biggies, right? Or how about murder? Is there any wiggle room for that one? No, not really. That's also a major no-no around here, right? So there are verses for that. But here's some of the questions I do get that may be considered gray areas. And by the way, this last year, 18 months or so, doesn't it seem like there's been a lot of these hard-to-answer questions? Here's a couple of them. How should I address my transgender colleague? Some of you are like, oh, that's where we're going this morning. Okay. Maybe you're wondering what pronouns you should use when you greet the barista at your favorite coffee shop. How about should I vaccinate my child? And that's not just a COVID question. That one's been around here for a while, right? And there's, there's godly people with strong convictions on both sides of that question. Or this one, is it appropriate for me to share my faith in the secular workplace? We talked about that at our men's breakfast a couple weeks ago. Such a great question. How much should I confront people on social media? Should I just stay silent when people post lies or when they celebrate evil? Or as a believer, as a Christ follower, do I have some kind of responsibility to step in and drop the truth hammer on them? Now listen, I'm going to answer all your social media questions this week if you just email me at d-o-u-g at sailorvillechurch.com. Okay, so that's doug at sailorvillechurch.com. I promise I'll get right back to you. Here's another one. Should I participate in my friend's same-sex wedding ceremony? One of our small group leaders just had that one come up this last week. And then totally hypothetically, bonus question, who do I vote for when none of the candidates hold what I would call biblical values? Hypothetically. So these are serious questions, right? And we've had some really great conversations and some hard praying and thinking and working through these. And, and there are good godly people that land on all kinds of different sides of each of these issues. So gray areas, by definition, are choices or decisions in which Christians, and that's important, we're talking about sincere followers of Jesus here, let's think about that, we have freedom to exercise what we might call Christian liberties. So that's the freedom and really the responsibility to be led by the Holy Spirit, catch that, led by the Holy Spirit, and not forced to betray our consciences by other Christians. Now there's a lot there, okay? So let's dive into Romans chapter 14 and let's get some help. And Lord, we pray. That as we uncover principles in your word this morning, that you would make us more like your son, Jesus. Romans 14, we're going to look at the entire chapter, make a couple comments as we read, but follow along, buckle your seatbelts. Here we go, verse 1. 
As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Here's why. For God has welcomed him, or both of them, really. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Some of you are really excited right now after reading the first couple verses of the chapter because you think it's going to be a message about food. And some of you are rubbing your hands together right now thinking, finally, a pastor is going to tell me whether or not my eating plan is in the Bible. We're not. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord also, and also gives thanks to God. So some people believe that one day is more special than the other, that there should be one day reserved for things like worship. Maybe that's the Lord's day. While other people say, wait a minute, isn't every day the Lord's day, right? Verse 7, none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. This is sort of all-encompassing, right? If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. Here's why. So that, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Now listen, that verse 7, 8, and 9, we could spend an entire sermon series on just those three verses, right? In a, in a world that seems to be more and more self-centered every moment, God says, hey folks, you don't live for yourself. In fact, you don't even die for yourself. No matter what you do, remember, you're mine, God says. I created you. I know you. I love you. Verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? We'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue will confess to God. So then, let each of us, so, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let's not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance, some kind of obstacle in the way of a brother. I know I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother, as a Christian, is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Highlight, circle, asterisk, do whatever you got to do to highlight that word love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So don't let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. On the other hand, the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, and whoever serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual uplifting. Paul says, listen, food and drink this day or that day, those things are important, but only so far as they point people to Jesus. Ultimately, the things we do, the people we are, the choices we make should be really concerned about the kingdom. And as kingdom people, we should prioritize things like righteousness and peace and joy and serving Jesus and building others up. Those are the priorities. But Paul goes on, verse 20, don't, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. 
But it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat and drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. And here's the key, because the eating is not from faith. And here's a phrase we're going to come back to in just a couple minutes. It's key for this entire area of gray matters. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We'll get back to that in a second. But first, some context. Rome was the center of the world in Paul's day, and it was sort of a melting pot for people from all over the place. Slaves and politicians, everyone from soldiers, businessmen, academics, philosophers, everybody from everywhere came to Rome. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Roman church, these believers. He's writing to a growing church congregation with a wide variety of people sitting in the chairs. And each of these people brought their own culture, their own background, their own religious traditions, and yes, even their own baggage to this new Roman church. So imagine yourself, put yourself in this place this morning. You're a Jew in Rome who's recently come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. All of your life you've tried to obey the Old Testament law, including those carefully followed dietary restrictions. And this is one of the things that has identified you to the pagans around you as a worshiper of Jehovah. You're different. You're set apart. It's part of serving God. But now you know Jesus as your Messiah and Savior, and you're, and you're in this church congregation. You're meeting regularly with people from all over the place, and some of them are Gentiles, believers who have also become followers of Christ, and you all want to do the right thing. Okay, so are you with me? Now, one day you're having a church potluck, which churches do every once in a while. We call it Summer Connect here. And you grab your plate. You make your way down to the food table, so you grab some handfuls of chips, and you get a scoop of salad, and you put some veggies on your plate, and then you see it. What is that? Is that pork? That's not pork, is it? I mean, who in the world would put pork? We're Christians. Not from Iowa, obviously. (laughs) So you turn to your, your buddy, your Gentile host, and you say, that's not pork, is it? And the guy says, yeah, it is. Absolutely it is. The, the butcher shop across from Jupiter's temple was running a big sale, so we, whole, we got a whole bunch for this church party. And you're horrified. The law says that pork is unclean. And even worse, that meat's probably left over from some kind of sacrifice that was made to an idol. And you look back at your friend and you say, dude, how can you claim to be a Christian and eat this meat? Don't you realize this was probably used in a sacrifice to Jupiter? And he laughs at you. He says, you got to be kidding, man. That idol's not a god. You know that. It's just a piece of stone. Loosen up. Don't be such a prude. Don't you know that Christ as Christians has set us free from all those picky little rules and regulations? Dude, we're free to exercise our Christian liberties now. And this was the gray area. Should I eat meat that was offered to idols? Or even could have been offered to idols? Or should I devote one day as more holy than another? Or is it okay to drink a little wine now and then? And so you see our decisions, those decisions we make in gray areas can be, well, really important. And that's why we need help this morning. How do we choose when the choice isn't clear? To help us work through that, we're going to look at a few principles that will help guide our decisions in these gray areas. And taking a a page out of the John Nemers book, who last week gave us the answer before the end, here's what you're going to walk away with this morning, all right? How to choose when the choice isn't clear. Number one, focus on faithfulness. 
How do we choose when it seems like we can't choose the right thing? Or there's more than one right thing? Number one, we're going to focus on faithfulness. And number two, we're going to ask the right questions. Ask the right questions. But I told you we're going to come back to the end of Romans chapter 14. So let's do that and just highlight that verse. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It's really key to this whole discussion. Remember what's happening in Romans chapter 14. So we got some gray areas, right? Do I eat meat offered to idols? Do I reserve one day as more holy than another? Can I drink wine or no? And Paul's big summary at the end of the chapter is this. Listen, folks, whatever you do, if it doesn't come from a posture of faith, it is sin. Paul says focus on faithfulness. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You've read that one, right? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. In other words, even if you're doing the right things, you can still have the wrong motivations and it can be sin. You can raise your hands in church, send your kids to a Christian school, give money to the poor, and all of that can be sin. Now, you might say, yikes, that seems a little strange. I can obey the letter of the law and do it with the wrong posture and I've missed the point. Exactly. Exactly. This is the same principle we see throughout the rest of Scripture, actually. When it comes to making choices that please God, it's not just about doing this or that or checking this box or that box. Some of you grew up like that, right? It's about our hearts, our motivation, our posture, and in this case, a posture of faith. You might say, what about the Old Testament? Wasn't that all about the law? Even in the Old Testament, living under the law, King David writes this in Psalm 51. God, I will not delight, you will not delight in sacrifices, God, or I would give it to you. God, you're not going to be pleased with just a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are, catch this now, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. See, God's focus is on faithfulness, on our hearts, on our motivations, so how do we do this? How do we live this life of faith? How do we live this broken reliance on the Lord? Just a couple ideas to get us started here this morning. First of all, start your day in God's Word. Start your day in God's Word. Build into your life a daily dependence on Jesus. Discover God's character in the pages of Scripture and understand how desperately you need Him in the face of every single decision you make. That's number one. Start in God's Word. You've got to do that. And then number two, ask God for help. Soak every single decision in prayer. James 1, if, you, if, if any of you lacks wisdom, all of us, let him ask God who gives generously to every single person without reproach, without holding back, and it will be given to him. Folks, we have a God that has just said we can ask him for wisdom and he'll give it to us. Do you ever need wisdom? Do you ask God for wisdom? I hope so. In fact, let me ask that. When was the last time you really cried out to him and you said, God, I'm helpless here. I can't possibly figure this out on my own. I need you. God said, I'll give you the wisdom. Just ask me. I wonder if the value that I place on prayer reveals the depth of my faith sometimes. Start your day in God's word. Ask God for help. And then focus more on your dependence than your decision. Focus more on your dependence than on your decisions. This, this seems so like counterintuitive for us, doesn't it, sometimes? Isn't the most important thing that I can do to, to make the right decision? Maybe not. Maybe the most important thing is that you live in a constant state of dependence on God. 
This week I asked Emily Rodert, one of our interns here at Sailorville for the summer, to give us a summary of what she was learning during her time here. You know, a lot of times our interns are trying to figure out what, what, what God is maybe calling them to do in some kind of vocational ministry or not. And, and so we have these discussions. And this is what Emily said. Emily said, I'm, I'm realizing that God wants me to focus on faithful obedience every day, and he'll take care of the details of my future. I'll read that again. I'm realizing that God wants me to focus on faithful obedience every day, and he'll take care of the details of my future. High schoolers, you heard that, right? That's sort of a biggie. And really, when it comes to deciding what to do in the face of gray areas, maybe, maybe we all need to spend a little bit more time focusing on our faithfulness than worrying about our future. Now, I get it. That's not exactly the answer that some of you are looking for this morning, but, but that's really the answer that Paul gives us. Whatever you do, if it doesn't come from a posture of faith, it's sin. I think some of us need to hear that today. How do we choose when the choice isn't clear? First, focus on faithfulness. Focus on faithfulness. And then, and I think only then, should we start asking some of these big-time questions. And so here's the first question after we focus on faithfulness that we need to ask. We've really already talked about it a little bit. What does God command me to do? Here's the first question. What does God command me to do. Here's what we're trying to get at. Is there an absolute in Scripture that makes it very clear what I should or shouldn't do in this situation that I'm facing right now? For instance, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, God's will, His command, His absolute is that you and I abstain from sexual immorality, that we keep ourselves sexually pure. So if you're in a dating relationship right now and you're wondering whether or not you should be sleeping together, here's your answer. If you're trying to justify an impure relationship with someone that isn't your spouse, whether it's an affair or pornography or whatever, here's your answer. There's a command for that. Absolutely not. Shut the door. Close the book. It's over. There's a command to obey. There's no decision to make there. It's not a gray area. But what if there isn't a clear command to obey? Here's the next question. What does Christ show me to do? What does Christ show me to do? If we want to make wise decisions in gray areas, we probably should get to know Jesus and figure out how he lived, right? Here's God in human form, walking on the earth, eating, sleeping, teaching, confronting, and making choices when the choice might not have been clear. In fact, we believe so strongly in following Jesus' example, imitating Christ, that it's at the core of who we want to be at a church, as a church. You've probably heard us say it already a couple times this morning. We want to make more people, say it with me, more like Jesus. We even wrote a little book about it. When we read through the passages of Scripture, the pages, one by one, we can paint a pretty clear picture of what it means to practice the Jesus way, to think like him, to speak like him, to love like him, to live like him. Several years ago, the letters WWJD became pretty much a global phenomenon. Some of you are around for that. Some of you are still around for that. Everybody from pastors to pop stars were wearing WWJD bracelets. I was a youth pastor, so I had one in like every single color. <laughs> WWJD stands for what would Jesus do? And, I, and I'll admit, it's a little bit of a cheesy line, right? But here's the thing. My goodness, it's a great question. And it's one we should be asking when we're faced with difficult decisions. Here it is. How can I imitate Jesus in this situation? How would Jesus treat someone with different political views than mine? How would Jesus use social media? 
How would Jesus tell us to think about our finances? Whether you've just become a follower of Jesus or you've been a Christian for years, ask yourself, how does Christ's life and teaching, his example, help me know what to do in these gray areas I'm facing right now? What would Jesus do? Does Jesus give us an example to follow? Is there a command? And what does Jesus do? And here's another one. It's sort of a biggie. What does love compel me to do? What does love compel me to do? Sometimes when we're faced with a decision and the right choice isn't obvious, the best thing to do is just ask, which choice is the most loving choice? You see it all through Romans 14 that we just read. You go back and look at that and see how men, women interacted with each other, how they were supposed to. Now watch how this works in Matthew chapter 22. The religious leaders of the day come to Jesus and one of them asks, hey Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus looks right back at him and the others standing around him, and he says to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and first or priority commandment. The second is just like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, on, all the, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophet. Everything hangs on these two. And so the Pharisees asked Jesus, what's, what's the number one command that I need to obey? What's the bare minimum? What's the least I can do and still be okay with God? Out of the hundreds of Old Testament laws, which one is the most important? That's the one I want to do. And Jesus looks back at them and says, it's real simple, guys. Love. Just love. Okay, hang on, Jesus. That's way too generic. I'm looking for something specific here. I know love, but what specifically do I need to do to be better than these other guys at this religious thing? Love God. Love God. Love people. It's genius in its simplicity, isn't it? What would someone who loves God with everything they have and loves people the same way, what would that person do in the situation you're facing right now? What would that person do with the choice that you have? What does love compel you to do? How would someone compelled by God's love speak to a transgender coworker? How would someone compelled by God's love love someone else on a date? Yikes. How would godly, loving parents discipline their children? How would a truly loving person live in your neighborhood? How should someone who loves God treat others who might look, sound, or worship differently than they do? How would someone who loves God supremely and wants the eternal best for people, how would that person interact with people that believe differently than they do about vaccines or politics or immigration or racial tension or even gender equality? When the choice isn't clear, what does love compel you to do? It's a big question. There's two more for this morning, and this next one's important too. Here it is. What does my community encourage me to do? What does my community encourage me to do? Here's what we already know. As humans, we're created for community. We're formed for family. We're built for this thing called body life. Andrew said it this morning. We are better together. And here's the truth. You can't grow spiritually unless you're connected relationally. We need each other to live out the Christian life. In fact, search scripture. In all of the pages of the Bible, there are no lone Christians. As soon as God calls someone to himself, he immediately joins that person to the community of faith so that they can begin sharing life together with other believers. Proverbs chapter 18 reminds us that it's the foolish person that seeks out his or her own desire, who isolates himself and who rebels against wise counsel. You don't want to be a fool, do you? 
Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Here's why. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Listen, friend, you need people in your life who will exhort you daily so that you won't make sinful choices that may lead you to fall away from God. You need men and women in your life who can look at you when you're facing a gray area and say, have you thought about this? Is your motivation right? Is this really going to make you more like Jesus? Do you have people like that in your life? And can I be so bold as to say when you're faced with a big decision, when you're looking at uncertainty square in the face and you have no idea what to do, can I just say the Bible calls you a fool if you don't ask your Christian community for help? That's one of the reasons we try hard to find, to help you find your people here at Sailorville. That's Summer Connect. It's membership. It's small groups. It's Bible studies. It's all that community because we're better together and we're foolish when we isolate ourselves. So the next time you're trying to make a choice and the choice isn't clear, you have those. Don't Google it. Don't Facebook it. Ay, ay, ay. It's like today's version of the Magic 8-Ball. Ask your Christian community. Ask your Christian community. Finally, for this morning, what does the gospel convince me to do? What does the gospel convince me to do. Paul writes a very similar passage to Romans 14 in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he gives us one final question we need to ask when facing gray areas this morning. He says in verse 32 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Don't offend anybody. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. And here's his purpose. Here's the outcome that he's looking for. So that they may be saved. Do you see Paul's heartbeat in that? And that should be ours too. Because whether you know it or not, the way you choose in difficult choices affects your witness for Christ. The world is watching you. The world is watching this church. And it's an issue of testimony. What your life says about God. So your testimony either tells the truth about God or it tells a lie. The choices that you make in gray areas should reflect your concern to not bring offense to God's reputation, but instead to bring him praise. And I don't know if you're excited about the Olympics in your household, but my goodness, we are pumped. Maybe you've been following this story. It sounds like one of the favorites from the U.S. track team who, who actually would compete in the 100-meter dash in the Olympics won't be able to compete. Her name is Shakari Richardson. She's a U.S. track sensation. She punched her ticket to the Tokyo Games after last month's Olympic trials, and now she's been suspended after testing positive for marijuana. In an interview I watched and read this last week, Richardson, who's 21 years old, said this. Now, I want you to catch some of the truth of this, even though I don't think she meant it the way we're going to talk about it. As much as I'm disappointed, Richardson says, I know that when I step on that track, I don't represent myself. I represent a community, a country, and a family that's shown me great support and great love. Here's what she's saying to us this morning. I understand that I represent a greater community here. It's not just about me. Richardson says, I made a mistake. That mistake doesn't just reflect back on me. It reflects on the reputation of my family, the athletic community, my team, and yes, even my country. And I think there's something profound that we can learn from this 21-year-old track star. You don't ever make a decision in a vacuum. 
Your choices impact your community. And if you call yourself a Christian, then the reputations of your church, of Jesus Christ, and yes, even the gospel are impacted by your decisions. And so the next time you're faced with a gray area, remember, your choice impacts the way people see the gospel. So how will your testimony be impacted by your decision? When you post that picture, ooh, meddling now, I know it. Does it adorn the gospel? Does it show others how beautiful Jesus is and the Jesus way of life really is? Or does it distract from the gospel? If you drink that, eat that, go there, dress that way, be with that person, will it tear up, build down the reputation of the gospel of Jesus, maybe even of this church? And here's a question. What does your concern for the reputation of the gospel convince you to do? So here are the five questions again. When, when we need wisdom in gray areas, we're going to first of all focus on faithfulness, and then we're going to ask a couple of these questions. What does God command me to do? What does Christ show me to do? What does love compel me to do? My community encourage me to do? And then finally, what does the gospel convince me to do? Now here's the thing. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're still thinking about that last phrase at the end of Romans chapter 14. What, whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. I think there's a warning in that verse to some of you that have not come to Christ yet for forgiveness or placed your hope in him. And if that describes you here either in the room or even watching online this morning or later, please don't just say to yourself, I'm sure I'm fine. I try to live a pretty good life. In fact, I really don't sin all that much. Here's the problem with that. According to Romans chapter 14, verse 23, everything you're doing is sin. If you're not trusting in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, then none of your actions come from faith in Jesus. But instead, every single one of them is sinful. Did you hear that? Every single one of your actions is sinful, even the ones you think are good. And I hope if you've not received Christ with all of his forgiveness and all of the hope that this week you won't be able to shake loose the thought that everything you do is sinful in God's eyes because whatever does not come from faith is sin. Living for Jesus is the best way to live. So friend, give your life in faith to him today. Don't walk out of here without doing that. And some of you saw the title of today's message and you thought, finally, a preacher's going to tell me who I should marry. Or if it's a sin to drink beer or whether God's okay with me getting a tattoo. If you're looking for a passage that gives you crystal clear answers to every single gray area choice that you might need to make, you're probably disappointed this morning. And honestly, frankly, that passage doesn't exist. There isn't a verse for that. There really, it's not really the point of what the sermon series is all about, right? The sermon series is dealing with the tensions that we feel because the Bible isn't written to give us easy answers to hard questions. The Bible's written to help us know and love God and to be more like his son Jesus and to advance his mission in our community and around the world. Will you join God in that? Will you join Sailorville Church in that? Let's make wise choices together. Lord, we need you. Oh my goodness, God. We are faced with hundreds of, if not thousands of decisions every single day. And Lord, it seems, you know, maybe to us that some of those decisions are insignificant, but the decisions that we make determine the 
direction and in some cases the quality of our lives and decisions are important. And so, God, we're faced with tough choices, maybe gray areas. How do we choose when the choice isn't clear? Lord, I, I pray that we would walk in faithfulness, be led by your Holy Spirit, stay in step with your word, soak every decision, every choice, every question we have in prayer. Why not? Why wouldn't we do that, God? And then we would ask some of these questions. Lord, is this an absolute? Is this a no-brainer? Should I just stay away from this thing? What did Jesus' example help me understand in this choice? What, is, what does love compel me to do, my community? And Lord, if I really love the gospel and, 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 I, and I want your reputation, the reputation of this church, the reputation of Christ and the gospel to, to, be, to be increased, not decreased, what, what decision would I make? Lord, there's other questions, of course, but help us to have wisdom in these things. We need you. Let's walk out like that together. In your name, amen.